Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ooh, it's up late reading my PDF of fear. It's a kind of awkward way to read. It is a very awkward way to read. Now it's out too, so you can just read the book. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind. Ezra Klein is back with us. And he has returned with some some big announcements. Well, medium-sized announcements. Although for one of you, the announcement would be huge, life-changing. So we have- Your uh, life could be changed by this announcement. We have an open audio engineer job working, among other things, on The Weeds and The Ezra Klein Show. Uh, You can check that out at boxmedia.com. They have a careers tab. That is a job for somebody with audio engineering experience. But if you love these shows and you'd love to work on them, we would love to work with you. So go check that out. Again, it's voxmedia.com. They have a careers dropdown and you can find it there. The other quick thing, the Ezra Klein Show this week, I have an interview with David French of the National Review. I think Weed's fans will be into that one because it comes out of this show. You guys might remember the episode we did on the great Twitter wars, the Sarah Young stuff. We talked a lot about David French's pieces in that. Then he wrote an interesting response to that Weed's discussion, and then I had him on my show to discuss it. It's a total Inception episode, but it was it's an interesting one. So you can check that out on the Ezra Klein Show wherever you get your fine podcasts. But what about the Weed's today? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to talk here on the weeds about. You, you sound excited. No, it's very, it's very exciting. No, so listen. Um, <laughs> well, there's been a there's been a buzz a buzz in Washington D.C. about the dual occurrences of the mysterious New York Times op-ed, whose author claims to be a member of the resistance inside the Trump White House, and Bob Woodward's book Fear, which I would say broadly reflects the same kind of perspective that, I mean, he has a lot of campaign stuff from Steve Bannon at the start, but the the sort of the broadest narrative of fear is that a number of senior people in the administration feel that Donald Trump is kind of temperamentally unsuited for the presidency, has a lot of bad instincts, counterproductive impulses, but, and I mean, and this is the same as the New York Times op-ed guy, but that they broadly endorse the policy direction that Donald Trump is taking the country on and they are working to both contain and and assist Donald Trump in this paradoxical way. Could I offer a structuring thought for this conversation? Let's structure. I think that what we're seeing here are on the one hand a dual track presidency and on the other hand a dual track resistance. 
Yes. And both would be interesting to talk about. Yeah. Yes. So so yeah. which one do we want to do first? I mean, let's go with the, the dual track presidency because that seems like the thing to which the dual track resistance is the epiphenomenon, yes. right? And the two track presidency is a phrase that we've seen in some of the more sanguine takes, especially from national security folks. You know, the thesis being that because Donald Trump does not have a particularly weedsy interest in policy, to say the least, that it is, you know, Welcome he Welcome on the either, show anytime, though. Oh, my gosh. Yes, please, <laughs> Mr. Trump. But in the absence of that, you know, his neglect or ability to be distracted easily has created the space for members of his administration, both political appointees and civil servants, to just kind of keep on keeping on or to do things that are more in line with what other presidents would be pursuing rather than the more off-the-wall ideas of the Trump administration, both substantively and particular, like trade policy and the way that Trump makes decisions. And this coming up explicitly in the New York Times op-ed was not super surprising because it was describing the same phenomenon, but it was definitely interesting that that's explicitly a way that somebody within the White House or within the Trump administration, we're not entirely clear where this person is coming from, sees their role. They literally see, despite being apparently fairly close to the president on the org chart, they see their role as operating totally independently of the president and making sure that things on one track are going smoothly because things on the presidential track will not. Do you buy it? Do you buy that we have a presidency that is presenting one way and acting another, like an aberrational public presidency and then the quasi-traditional governance presidency, for lack of a better term? I mean, I think the reason that this conversation is usually frustrating to me is that the administrative state and the executive branch are this massive, complex organism. And in some cases, it does appear to be the case that there are people who are trying to operate independently of the presidency. But in a lot of other regards, that is not true, right? Like, obviously, I'm going to be framing this for myself in terms of immigration. And immigration really doesn't seem like an area where there are members of the permanent state that are working not to do what Donald Trump wants. It really is an area where Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller and other folks who really do know how to turn Trump's broad strokes into policy are successfully putting that into practice. So there are probably cases where there is a two-track presidency, but there is not, broadly speaking, an independent, functional, normal track. I think to me, what makes this a difficult discussion to undertake is that the most quote-unquote normal parts of the Trump policy agenda, right, which I would say are his tax and health care policies, right, where he's pursuing the exact same ideas as every other Republican, are also the most aberrant aspects of the American Republican Party as an institution, Right, that if you went to England or Australia, and maybe add or, climate change to that, yeah, or or France mm. or Sweden, and you said, I lead a right of center political party that is based in older people, more rural people, and the traditionally minded, and I have a lot of problems with immigrants coming into our community and critics of police officers, Swedish, Canadian, Australian, whatever conservatives would say, like, yeah, that makes sense, like. Circumstances differ from country to country, but like this is what unites conservative political movements everywhere in a globalized world. If you said to them, I think that some people should get sick and die because they are too poor, everyone would go, that's crazy, right? Like governments like in Austria where like they have 
ex-Nazi movements in power. Like they would say that is crazy. Nobody would say that, right? Like the the prime minister. The response to that would be, "Get your government hands off my Medicare." Just just that it's it's untenable. You know, like the the prime minister of Denmark, like he wrote a book about. Like philosophically, it's very libertarian. It's like Adam Smith is right about everything, blah, blah, blah. But like the idea that like maybe if you're poor, you just shouldn't be able to get food. Like that would be entirely off the table, but it's incredibly mainstream in American politics. So you have these aspects of Trump that are like hyper normal, right? If you were just trying to like baseline it, if you accept the premise that like Paul Ryan is like a good mainstream guy. There's like all this overlap with Paul Ryan's good mainstream ideas, but those ideas themselves are aberrant. And you can tell how aberrational they are when you look at even just like Republican Party campaign messaging because they themselves don't say that stuff. They don't say like the problem with Democrats is that they think we should take care of people's medical expenses. Like there's this incredible amount of of lying and hoopla around it. Remember how the problem with Obamacare was all of its Medicare cuts? Right. And and to me at and least— And high deductibles. And to me at least, that is what is— integral to understanding what's happening with Trump. And to me, what's frustrating about the Woodward book, that the Woodward book has so little grounding in actual policymaking or what's going on. And, and I mean, I understand why that is. That's like not his thing. But like, and, and it's also a function of the sources he's talked to. Our colleague, Andrew Prokop, has a really excellent piece on the Woodward book that frames it. And I would recommend if you're planning on reading that book and haven't yet reading Andrew's piece first, so that instead of playing a guessing game about where did this information come from, you can think about, okay, who was talking to Woodward and how do they want to make themselves appear? Right. And, and you know, so right, none of the main Woodward sources like seem to work at HHS or like on healthcare policy. And like he doesn't talk about the individual mandate even though he does talk about the formation of, of the tax reform thing. But right, right. He calls the tax reform bill like the only major legislative accomplishment of Trump's first year and just doesn't mention the fact that they also accomplished their main health care goal with it. Right. Well, I would say they didn't accomplish I mean, their main health care goal. Okay, fair enough. That's a, it was an important consideration, right? So at any rate, there really is a dual-track presidency, I think, right? There's like a kind of nutty Trump show, and then there's like a normal, particularly on, on sort of economic and social policy, rollout of Republican Party ideas, but those normal ideas are themselves nutty. Right. So I, I think there are a couple of things here. One thing I just think is useful to say about the Woodward book, about the senior anonymous op-ed, which I find less interesting than everybody else does due to its unbelievable banality. Like, I think the only interesting thing about that op-ed is the sort of mocking provocative way it's written towards the Trump administration. Take that out that almost gleeful like prodding of the president and it is what every member of the administration has been telling every reporter. I mean, I was like Dan Dresner, um, who's a political scientist but but writes for the Washington Post as well, has been tweeting out since the beginning of the presidency uh, screenshots of articles where Trump administration officials anonymously describe the president in terms befitting a toddler. There are now almost 500 tweets in that thread. So there's one thing about the incredible consistency of descriptions of the president. If you read the Woodward book, it reads a lot like the Wolf book, which Woodward is a much more respected, traditional figure than Wolf, but they're not telling a dramatically different story. If you read the senior official op-ed, it reads like the Woodward book, which reads like the Maggie Haberman or, you know, John Swan pieces. I mean, there's not a lot of confusion here. And what I also think is interesting is that even if you had none of that, 
like if none of those people had reported any of those things, but you just watch Donald Trump in public, you would also be able to come to all these conclusions, <laughs> like what he tweets, what he says, what he does, the way he acts at press conferences. So there's not a huge number of surprises here. And I do think part of it is just the unbelievable truth of what we've been seeing the whole way through going way back to the campaign is impressive. Yeah, Donald Trump has not appeared to grow or change at all in the presidency. He just is what he is. The thing about the dual track presidency, because this to me is really what the senior official's op-ed was about, more than the Woodward book, more than even the Wolf book. The senior official was almost saying we've got this contained. I see the Trump administration as much more of a coalitional government. It is Donald Trump who intuitively and emotionally seems more like a European far-right party. He intuitively has relatively positive um, ideas on the welfare state as long as it is going to his kind of people and has very oppositional ideas on culture, on immigration, on race, on national character, on, on national identity, that kind of thing. He seems to be in coalition with the traditional Republican Party, and the coalition seems to have almost divided power. The traditional Republican establishment seems to have control over economic issues, health care, taxes, that kind of thing. Donald Trump is really taking the lead on culture, on immigration, and there is a real consistent tussle over foreign policy because of the way power is or isn't shared there. They can't stop Donald Trump from being who he is in a room with Vladimir Putin. So stuff where it's very – where Trump doesn't care that much, but it's legislative. The Republicans in Congress take the lead. Immigration, Trump has taken the lead. Public communication over culture, Trump has taken the lead. And then foreign policy, there is this continuing conflict. Uh, But it's not one thing or the other. And I I think that's just like an important part of this. There isn't a dual track presidency or even a presidency. There is a complex like set of institutional power sharing agreements that are playing out in different ways in different arenas. Yeah, I think that broadly that is true. But I also think that the kind of division of labor that you assess is something I would have bought a lot more easily a year ago. Because while, yeah, there have been consistent struggles on foreign policy between Trump's instincts and, you know, the foreign policy establishment that clearly has its own institutional and ideological biases toward engagement, toward hawkishness, where we're seeing much more of like Trump feeling his oats and stepping into an area where the GOP has tried to hem him in in the last several months is trade, where we are seeing, you know— I'm going to probably keep coming back to the sources that Woodward used for his book because it's very clear that on economic policy that Woodward was talking to Gary Cohn and Rob Porter a lot. And both of those are free trade, quote unquote, globalist dudes who are also no longer in the Trump administration. And so they're now talking to Woodward about, oh, you know, we had to get a piece of paper off his desk that would have withdrawn the U.S. from its trade agreement with South Korea. You know, we were trying to stop all of this stuff and they're not there anymore. And sure enough— we really have seen more aggressive protectionist action from Trump, often, you know, with the endorsement of the Commerce Department on tariffs, on using national security exemptions for tariffs, on trying to renegotiate NAFTA and then blowing that up with a few words about Canada and all of that. And yes, some of that is you can't control Trump when he's in the room. But some of it, frankly, is that The executive branch appears to be going along with Trump on a bunch of this stuff, or at least has been worn down in areas where you would have expected Republicans to really assert, look, 
we're in this power sharing structure. We have to have our way on economic stuff. This is really where we know things and you don't. And Donald Trump has been disregarding those boundaries increasingly over the last several months. So I'm not really sure that this coalitional structure, I mean, it's clearly going to hold insofar as Republicans aren't abandoning Trump or the Trump administration over trade. But it doesn't seem that the power sharing aspect of it is super stable. Although, I mean, I'm struck, right? I mean, America, right, is a two-party system, right? There are some countries where formal coalitions are the way governments always work. America has has majority party government, but that means that every cabinet is a little bit of a coalition. And I'm not saying this is the only way to evaluate it, but if you ignore process issues, right, if you ignore the fact that Trump is maniacal, whereas Barack Obama was like famously cool customer and like ran a tight ship, there appear to me to actually have been more coalitional tensions in Obama's government in the first two years than there were in Trump's, right? They were handled in a much more professional way with a lot less crazy tattletelling. But there was a really serious, persistent disagreements inside the Obama team about how to deal with the banking crisis, about how to approach the fiscal stimulus question, about how to execute the pivot to deficits maneuver. And it's something that they Democrats like tussled with consistently through an eight-year span because there were – it would even be too simplistic to say it was like two sides, but there was like a range of views that had different people in them. The president seems to have changed his mind a little bit over time as circumstances varied. And there were real – you know, when you saw in the 2016 primary, you continue to see like substantive disagreement, not just disagreement about policy, but disagreement about policy that both sides care about, right? Whereas the Republicans have done pretty good job, I think, of staying out of each other's way on most topics where I think it's obvious that lots of people in the Republican Party don't really think Trump's take on immigration is good. But like they're almost all happy to go along with it, especially if it seems like a political winner. And Trump clearly doesn't have his like heart in the like welfare state rollback, but he's very much – doing it. And so you have this zone of conflict on trade, right, where where you have disagreement, right? Like it's not clear – like Trump sees it as part of the populist backlash against globalism, whereas Gary Cohen saw it as part of like economic policymaking. And there's been a shift in the balance of power, right? Cohen and Porter gone uh, are less efficacious than they used to be. We're getting more protectionist, although still much less protectionist than candidate Trump, you know, advertised he would be. But that's a pretty narrow spectrum of issues, right? And if Trump could actually do the management portion of his job in like a more responsible way that left everybody feeling like, you know, he had listened to their input and considered their options and made his decision in a deliberative way, it's a reasonable consensus that they have reached inside the Republican Party about how they want to govern, about what their priorities are, about how they deal. And something they deal with, right, that Democrats could never do, right, is make a decision that they have a really important policy priority on taxes that they simply don't want to talk about for political purposes, right? Whereas Democratic constituency groups tend to get really upset if their political leaders don't talk 
in public about their issue in the way that they want it to be talked about. They don't have the level of internal trust and internal cohesion in their coalition that the Republicans do where like you can say like this is a remorselessly tax-cutting pro-rich people administration, but we are not going to go out with that as our public message. And, you know, in some ways that to me is like the fundamental ongoing reality of American politics is an incredibly cohesive Republican Party. I think something that's interesting about this um, is I would frame the process differently here than you do, which is to say that at a couple of levels at different moments, what is interesting is how little process there is. Yes. And if you just don't have that much process, then there isn't that much time for internal coalitional disputes to, to emerge. So let's take healthcare as an example for a minute. The democratic healthcare effort was a roughly – I mean putting aside all the work that went into it before Barack Obama took office, right. it was a 13 to 15-month effort depending on how you look at it that had a huge amount of – it played out in a lot of different arenas over time. So there was like the White House weighed in in a very serious way, but there was also like a serious House process and a separate but like very serious Senate process. And everyone and wanted merging. a piece of it. Everybody wanted a piece of it. There was reconciliation. Whereas Republicans came in, like Paul Ryan released this bonkers health care bill that nobody had ever seen before. That was not like what had been in better way. That was just like some other thing. And it just like went. And the Trump administration did not weigh in in any serious way. I've talked to a lot of Republicans who were involved in that or who were outside experts who were consulted on that, all of them like feel embarrassed by what happened. And I was like, well, what happened? Like why, why did that go the way they did? And they basically say like the White House didn't want to be involved. Like a decision was made to move fast and, and just like everybody kind of like let it go. And I think you're completely right. The really interesting question is why they allowed that. But it was a – it was not a consensus over – policy. Like if you remember, an amazing thing about that was a way that places like AI and Heritage were shitting on the House Republican bills. There was a – I mean and in the end, stuff didn't pass actually. Like they didn't get the bill they wanted. But something happened in process where people did not demand the normal piece of it they would have. And the White House there and somewhat less so but still substantially stayed out of things on tax reform. They, they did not enter into that in the way that the Obama administration often did. To some degree, one thing I just hear a lot is that Republican members of the House and Senate and then separately the president himself just don't like policy in the way that a lot of Democrats do. Like a lot of Democratic House members, like they just – they're into policy and they want to get a piece of that and they want to argue about it. And a lot of Republicans, again, by their own testimony, they're in it for – in a more symbolic politics way. Like they're excited about a lot of fights. They're excited about big picture ideological and philosophical principles. But with some – with notable exceptions, they, they often don't want to be that involved in the details in it, which allows for processes that are much more closed, that move much more quickly. There's been an ability in this Republican coalition to move fast on policy in a way that the Democrats really didn't do. And I don't think it represents more – the way I would put it is that I don't think it represents more agreement. What I think it represents is more indifference or less commitment to outcomes in a way that I have thought is interesting. That breaks down when the administration decides to, to play. So immigration I think being the key example here but trade also being a good example. Like on immigration, the administration has decided to have a position and that's meant that rather than Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell coming up with what they think is good politics and passable policy and moving it very fast, a lot of possible deals have emerged and then been scotched when they hit the White House – 
on trade, again, there are, are things that are quite similar to that. When they decide to have a process with a lot of stakeholders, they don't move very fast. But it's not like they have often decided to not have anything we would recognize as a policy process. And I think to some degree they've paid for that. To some degree they've benefited from that. But it reflects a, a literally different level of commitment in a lot of these spaces to policymaking as something that you're supposed to be doing or that you care about doing in government. I want to refocus a little bit on the idea of the two-track presidency as it appears to be understood by those on the inside because we as people are – very interested in agendas, in visions of the world, in proactive policymaking. But what you most consistently hear from the people who think that they're enacting the two-track presidency, or at least what they're telling reporters, is often a reactive thing, right? It's not about like, oh, we are putting forward our own vision of America and the president is just doing his own thing. The theory of the case is the president has massive downside risk because he is an impulsive person who doesn't learn anything. That means that something could happen and we could all die or he could get us into a nuclear war. The purpose of the two-track presidency is that we are keeping any new development from becoming a disaster, whether that's Donald Trump coming up with some crazy idea on his own or it's, you know, reacting to something like a, you know, North Korean nuclear test or something like that. The, the two-track presidency's purpose is to keep the seat warm, right? And you actually did see this pretty explicitly in the Times op-ed where the author, whether with knowledge or otherwise, says, well, yeah, initially some people were talking about trying to use the 25th Amendment to get the president out of office, but we've since given up on that and we're just kind of keeping our heads down and biding our time. The idea being that, like, nothing that terrible can happen to the U.S. as long as people are trying to keep the president contained, and then eventually Donald Trump won't be president anymore, which gets to the kind of indifference toward policy outcomes that, you know, it turns out a lot of legislation and a lot of executive policy can be changed that doesn't blow up the world, but that still has consequences for a lot of people's lives. But it also sees the presidency as, you know, kind of accurately, frankly, as like the things on which the president of the United States as an individual has the most power are often national security things. They're often like situations where quick decisions either need to be made or the president has the power to make quick decisions just in case, which is how you get the, you know, getting papers off of Trump's desk because all Trump himself needs to do is sign them, but without a signature, they can't move forward. And so the two-track presidency kind of presents itself. And I think we're reading something into the subtext here because we understand the kind of people who are likely to be political appointees in the Trump administration. They're likely to be Republicans who are proud of the administration in certain regards. But the way that they're presenting themselves is we are just keeping the ship afloat because the president could overturn it at any time. But I think that the focus on national security issues, right, this comes in part from Woodward's sourcing, which is, right. is heavily weighted to that side. I think that presents a slightly misleading portrait of this because national security, you know, is life or death. And so people who have policy arguments about national security – feel and say and are believed to believe that not accepting their advice will get people killed or like right. get the that, world That scene happens up. a gajillion times right. in the Woodward book. But people who I know who have held appointments by Donald Trump, none of them work in national security. And they all feel about the work that they are doing the exact same way that I 
Jim Mattis seems to feel in all of these things, which is that they are trying to force the government to hew to orthodox conservative policymaking in the face of an impulsive president, right? But people who I know, they like – they work on tax policy. They work on communications regulation. They work on pharmaceuticals. They work in U.S. attorneys' gigs nowhere near the border. So like what they are dealing with is the life or death of the conservative movement in the United States of America. Like I don't think it is true that if we deviate from orthodox conservative telecommunication regulation that the world will end, it would be better. Right? Like when Barack Obama was president, we didn't have fully orthodox telecommunication regulation. That was better. We didn't have orthodox conservative tax policy and that was better. The fear that these people have though is exactly the same fear that Mattis has, which is that Trump freelancing is going to look at some polling or listen to some friend of his or simply decide that Chuck Schumer is making sense and is going to say that, look, like Trump has his like little zone of commitment, which is on immigration, respecting law enforcement, nationalism. But then when he hears about this other stuff, right, I mean a very concrete struggle that, that keeps being waged is between Trump clearly wants to impose price controls on prescription drugs, right? Like whenever he has the opportunity to ramble on this subject, he comes to the conclusion that the United States should do what foreign countries do and put price controls on prescription drugs. Trump's Health and Human Services, FDA, his economic team, none of them think he should do that. And so this exact same tug of war that exists with like, should we end NATO, also exists on prescription drug pricing, except like they're not trying to save the world. They're just trying to do – I mean you can characterize it however you want. But, but like they're having a policy argument but they're dressing it up in these like apocalyptic Trump terms. Let's take a break and come back because this brings up the dual track resistance. Yeah, yeah. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I think that all of that is correct, but I think that the fact that they're making it the subtext rather than the text isn't quite so simple as they're dressing it up in these high-minded principles. I think that there's a reason that we're not hearing about closed-door conversations at the Heritage Foundation where your sources in the pharmaceutical regulation are saying, look, we're trying to get these things you want to get done done. The president is being unhelpful. Like, the reason for that is in large part that the conservative movement is behind Donald Trump to an extent that it is not necessarily behind a lot of these policy aims. And I think we're seeing a lot of conservative intellectuals who are in a position to speak their minds show a lot of ambivalence about the fact that they're not sure that their voter base is more loyal to the ideas than they are to the president. But the other part of this is that a lot of these are political appointees overseeing civil servants. And the civil servants, you know, in some cases, that's looking like fairly open warfare within an agency, like Scott Pruitt at the EPA, where there's like an obvious distrust of the civil servants because you assume they're all liberals in line with the deep state. But often there's a certain kind of solidarity being projected when the political appointees are saying, you, like I, understand that our job is to make sure that the process is observed, that the you know executive branch does things in a deliberative fashion. Even though we disagree on the policy outcomes, we're both fundamentally day in and day out on the same team because we're trying to protect the president. So I think something that is worth talking about here, because I think it's a way in which the op-ed was super confusing. The op-ed writer adopted language of the resistance, right? I think it was literally like, I am part of the Trump resistance, but I'm on the Right, you know, and caveat, caveat. He probably didn't write the headline, but— the resistance in the way that, I don't know, um, like the Heritage Foundation is part of the resistance. Like he met the resistance to Donald Trump— negotiating pharmaceutical prices. Like the thing that they are, and you wrote a great piece on this map, but the thing that he said like the internal resistance is doing is trying to make Donald Trump into like the Paul Ryan presidency. And I think this ended up confusing a lot of people. I think one reason the op-ed was such a big deal despite saying so little that was actually new was it used language that if you were reading it not with like your Washington decoder ring on correctly, you thought that what was happening was like the hashtag resistance was inside the White House and they're going to try to stop this stuff from happening. But the resistance like had a huge victory when John McCain gave the thumbs down signal and the Obamacare appeal bills died for the final time or for the final time for now at least. That was like a failure for the inside Trump resistance, which like wishes they had gotten the White House to engage more constructively on the Obamacare appeal effort and then succeeded. Like the White House writer's resistance was basically like he does not like the trade policy, doesn't like the president acting crazy. But he or she is proud of the deregulation, proud of the tax reform, proud of the economy, proud of a bunch of other things that are going on. And, and so I do think something that is an interesting tension just throughout the the presidency, and it comes up also now in the Democratic Party, is, is the Trump resistance a resistance to Donald Trump? Is it a resistance to a Republican administration? Is it a resistance – like 
To what exactly? And and this comes up in the Democratic Party because there's a, a vein of going at Trump, which is trying to create a nonpartisan argument against Donald Trump. Like under that argument, the, like Mike Pence would be fine, right? We just shouldn't have a crazy person as president of the United States. There's another argument, which is we shouldn't have a Republican, which as a subset includes crazy Donald Trump, but not only crazy Donald Trump as the president of the United States. And these are actually quite different ways of running against Trump. To some degree, Hillary Clinton ran against Trump trying to create the nonpartisan argument, hoping to peel off a lot of college-educated Republicans who seem like they're wavering on Trump in the polls and that, that strategy ultimately failed. To some degree, uh, Barack Obama tried to unite these in the speech he gave. A very interesting thing that was happening in Republican commentary in the Obama speech was about how it was like the unfair treatment of Mitt Romney that gave you Donald Trump. The unfair treatment appears to have been like running a campaign against Mitt Romney when Mitt Romney was running a campaign against Barack Obama. But but there is this thing where a lot of Republicans believe if only you had let us put in power like the, the normal Republican, you wouldn't have gotten the nutty Republican. But I do think that there is a lot of confusion over some of these terms, and it actually creates confusion around coalition building in, I think, important ways, and to some degree helps explain things like the Jeff Flake-Bob Corker axis of talking about how they don't like do how Donald Trump is acting, but never holding anything hostage because they don't particularly want to hold the congressional agenda hostage because the congressional agenda is mostly just conservative, but I which think, they like. I, I mean, I but I think that Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, right, like delivered the answer there, right? Which is because I hear this argument made about them. We're like, how could you expect them to hold something hostage that they like in order to stop something that they don't like? And the answer is like, that's fucking life, man. Like <laughs> sometimes in life, if you want to do a thing, you have to sacrifice another thing. Right. And what Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and the resistance op-ed writer and stuff, like what they've all said is that they agree with some of the liberal criticisms of Donald Trump. But they are literally unwilling to make literally any sacrifice at all of anything in order to effectuate that agreement, which is fine. Everybody is like allowed to make their choices. But that to me has signaled loud and clear for over a year now that like there is no coalition to be made. Well, can I push on this in a way that I just think is strange? Here's what I think they would say. Well, we sacrificed our jobs. And what I've never understood is why they preferred to sacrifice their jobs than just like try to run for re-election but hold some stuff hostage because, to be more effective. Because, because I mean, because I think that's how committed they right? are. It's like, so I think that frankly, this argument is one axis of a broader argument among people who would personally prefer someone other than Donald Trump to be president, which I guess is a, a more precise right. term of what, than, for what right. we're dealing with here than resistance. That's about legitimacy. Jeff Flake and Bob Corker on some level do not believe that Donald Trump is a legitimate president. It's not that they believe that like Vladimir Putin personally installed him at the head of the executive branch, but they agree with a lot of the, you know, temperamental criticisms that Donald Trump is not behaving in a way that is deserving of the office of the presidency. And if that's your problem, then trying to make as few waves as possible and waiting for somebody else to be in the presidency is a sufficient answer to that. I think that even, you know, the reason that I think the kind of do you agree with an orthodox conservative agenda or not is maybe understating the number of fragmentations among people who would classify themselves in, as the resistance is that there are all kinds of questions about do you point to the illegitimacy of this, you know, and try to not heighten the contradictions, but like, try to mount a fight against what you see as an Ill illegitimate regime, or is your response to a president who you consider 
less than legitimate to just wait for there to be another president. This is the same argument we see in the conversations between the left and the center on court packing. It's the same argument that you see with, you know, the questions of, okay, if you really disagree with Trump, why don't you resign and talk publicly? Why are you trying to work from the inside? It's the same conversation that, like, a lot of members of the permanent civil service are having with themselves on a fairly regular basis of, I cannot condone the things that are being done by the federal government in one way or another right now. Do I stay in a job that is probably going to last after this particular president is out of office, or do I make myself clear and wash my hands of any involvement with the federal government because it's been tainted by this dude? I mean, I thought this really came through at John McCain's funeral, where I think you saw um, George W. Bush and some other traditionalist Republicans give speeches that— in certain segments of the Democratic Party were like optimistically heard as resistance speeches. But like what I think they were is they were the opposite of resistance speeches. Just like that op-ed is the opposite of a resistance op-ed. What those people are all trying to say is like, look, if you are someone who in 2016 voted for Barbara Comstock for House, like keep on voting for Barbara Comstock for House, right? That like lots of the old Republican Party that you remember from before Donald Trump is like still here. Those values endure. John McCain is a lodestar. And like, it's fine. Wait, did you? A lodestar. Lodestar. Did you you write the op-ed? Right. Are you the senior administration official? No, 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 no. no. If Matt had written the op-ed, there would have been more typos. And then then resistance. (laughs) I love Matt, but I also love our copy desk. Resistance is the opposite argument, right? Like resistance is that the Trump era has exposed the like rotten soul of the conservative movement and we need to resist it. Then there are some questions of like, tactical modality, right? But like this is an important question, right? Is like is Trump a passing fad that like if people who adhere to true conservative values just kind of like hold on tight and do their best, that the next Republican president – that like we will continue to have the rule of law and free and fair elections and the next Republican president will have more honor and decency and blah, 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 blah. Or has the widespread acceptance of Trump, of Trump's corruption, of Trump's racism, has it showed that the power structures that put Trump in office, the Federalist Society, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Rifle Association – are fundamentally dangerous and undemocratic. And like I think something all of these people, I I sincerely hope, like we're we're recording on 9-11, I think they should all think to themselves, right, is like this thing that they say they are holding on to, what is going to happen if Donald Trump is still in office in 2021 and there is a big terrorist attack on the United States, right? Like is the rule of law going to hold up then? Is the courts and their independence going to hold up then or are we going to have Muslims in concentration camps and a national registry? I'm not sure. I, I'd, like but to make, like, I'd like to take that further actually because – Further than Muslims in concentration camps? No, no, no. In, into a different – I didn't mean it like that. OK. <laughs> it's about to get real dark here on the week. <laughs> I think if you were one of the Republicans we're talking about here at the beginning of the Trump presidency, one of the things you might have been watching for – is does the Republican Party as a whole seem to continue to exist in a separate way and with a sense of distance and skepticism towards the president? And I don't just mean here Republicans in Congress. I mean the Republican base. I mean Fox News. I mean the larger set of institutions institutions and players that are the Republican Party. 
or does it merge? And what has absolutely clearly unequivocally happened is it has merged. Donald Trump is fully capable, as you see with Representative Mark Sanford, of beating Republicans in primaries. He is not a popular president, but among Republicans, he's an overwhelmingly popular president. They don't just say they will vote for him. They approve of him. They approve of him personally, of the job he is doing. He clearly has, like Fox News has reconstructed its primetime lineup to be even more favorable to Donald Trump than like Megyn Kelly is gone and Tucker Carlson has replaced her. If you look at what is happening with most members of the House, with most members of the Senate, they have like fully bought into Donald Trump. I mean, Orrin Hatch is there saying you're a great man and, you know, it's such an honor to even sit, be near you on a, on a human level. So I think the question back in the day when it was like Donald Trump is a passing aberrant fad, the question was what happens if there's a terrorist attack and Donald Trump is president? But now that Donald Trump has so – decisively changed the character of the party. Now that some of the institutions have begun to restructure themselves around Donald Trump, and now that he has shown to so many others, and look at any Republican primary for evidence of this, that the way to win Republican primary elections is to be more Trump-like, even if you're not Donald Trump himself, to be more Trump-like. I actually think one of the issues here that the true never-Trumpers have gotten right is that the Republican Party what it is becoming, what it has become, and what it will then – the fruit it will bear, not just over one election or not just while Trump is in office, but over time is much more dangerous. And so I don't just think the question is like if this keeps going, like what if Donald Trump is in office in 2021? But if the Republican Party doesn't lose some big elections in big ways, what will like the third generation of this be like? I think the Republican Party as an institution has gone onto a very dangerous path. I think that is completely clear. And I don't see any serious grappling with that within the party. I think even people completely understand the party is submitted to Donald Trump. And not only that, but Donald Trump has changed the internal incentives of the party, who is winning, who is gaining power, what they're doing. Like, I think the, for instance, the Speaker of the House who will replace Paul Ryan is clearly going to be closer to Donald Trump than Paul Ryan was, right? One reason it might be Kevin McCarthy is Kevin McCarthy is a good personal relationship with Trump. But one reason it might be one of like the Jim Jordan Meadows axis is that they have an even closer relationship with Donald Trump. So like it just keeps going like this. And I think that the way the question used to be phrased was very much about Donald Trump personally. But the reason I think that the difference between a resistance to Trump and a resistance to where the Republican Party is going is important is that it is now – like Donald Trump has changed the party he leads and – what it will create after Donald Trump may well be, certainly in my view, more dangerous than Trump. People who have learned Donald Trump's lessons but don't carry his personal baggage and eccentricities could be much more dangerous than Donald Trump. So I think that it's really hard to talk about this without being more explicit about what we're expecting in terms of resistance both as a noun and, and like as an activity, right? Because what I kind of hear you saying, Ezra, is why is no one staying within the Republican Party and Republican institutions instead of leaving and speaking their mind? Like we have seen a lot of elite conservatives saying this has revealed a rot at the heart of the Republican Party, like the Jennifer Rubens of the world, right? This is definitely a strain we've seen in right of center commentary over the last couple of years. But these are people who don't have institutional presence in the GOP. So what you're asking is, why is no one who has a lot to lose sticking out their necks, right? Like, essentially, why isn't Ted Cruz still the Ted Cruz of the 2016 Republican National Convention? No, but see, I'm not – this is actually the distinction I make. I'm not – 
asking that. Like, I think I know the answer to that. Okay. I think like we, like Donald Trump is revealing a lot about the Republican Party and people like I think like for instance the decision of people like Flake and Corker to retire rather than like they will fight for a year but then like they're not going to keep trying on this one is actually super revealing but the point I'm making about this is that I think if you are thinking about the Republican Party as an institution, the danger of it has stopped just being Donald Trump. The danger of it has become a Trumpist Republican Party and what that's going to create down the road. Like I don't think when we think about what could go wrong in America at this point, to me, the thing I worry so much about is Donald Trump in 2021. The thing I worry about is a Republican Party infused by Donald Trump continuing on down the line. Well, let's put it but another way. Other- if, if Republicans lose big in 2018 and then Trump loses in 2020, there are enough figures around in 2021, 2022 who have stature, U.S. senators, yep, governors, exactly. attorneys generals right. who are from saying. pre-Trump that right. people are going to say, this really didn't work out for yep. us. Yeah. We should go in a different direction. But if things go well for Republicans, if they gain two Senate seats and they hold the House and Trump gets reelected in 2020 and then 20 uh, – 24 rolls around. By then, you have a whole Trump generation, yes, right? This is what I'm the saying. The Corkers and the Flakes and the McCains will be gone. You'll have little things like, like the Florida primary where Ron DeSantis beat, uh, I forget, the guy who initially seemed like the front runner, right? Everybody who moves up a rung in the next six years will have been the Trumpiest possibility in these various things, at which point it doesn't matter necessarily what happens to like Donald Trump or Don Jr. that like history is is set on a particular kind of yeah, the, course. The danger of Trump is, is what he's doing to the party so like around you, him, you not just what now. he could do at a moment of crisis. So this makes a lot of sense, but it also highlights for me the extent to which we're talking about the first of many decisions. And, you know, you kind of mentioned coalition building early in this segment, and I think we need to come back to it because – one of the reasons that I'm so resistant to use the term resistance is a lot of the people who cling to that mantle most tightly are people from the center left to center right who think of themselves as on a popular front footing right now, right? They are explicitly saying, I am currently agreeing with people who under normal circumstances I would be disagreeing with because we need to reset our political discourse to the point it was at in a healthier time where we could believe that people on both sides of the aisle had good intentions. Whereas a lot of people from the center left to the left believe that this is the inevitable consequence of the Republican Party as it's existed for the last generation. And their idea of making it impossible for Trump to recur is to salt the earth with the ashes of the Republican Party, to mix my agricultural metaphors. And like, they believe it's the, the, the Democratic Party too, right? They need to they need to kill out the neoliberal Democrats. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Your point but, is well taken. Right, right. And this is if you see pharmaceutical deregulation not as a thing where Donald Trump is thwarting the conservative agenda, but as a thing where conservatives gave us Donald Trump because they made it possible to become a party of plutocrats that was throwing some culture war chum to the base every now and again, then you don't want to make common cause with anyone, even the people who are coming across and saying something is rotten at the heart of the Republican Party as it exists right now, because a lot of those people are simultaneously saying, look, we can be hawkish on immigration without being racist. Look, we can care a lot about deregulation and not just empower a bunch of plutocrats. Like, don't think of the Trump administration as conservative. It really isn't. Coalition building requires members of the coalition to want to 
join with each other. And there's a certain left running away from the center dynamic in what is broadly termed the resistance right now, that if your short-term goal is to defeat Donald Trump in the next couple of elections, needs to be an explicit conversation that's happening. And some people are having the meta conversation of like, should we consider you part of the resistance if you know, you supported, you thought of Sarah Palin as a feminist in 2008, or if you supported Obamacare repeal in 2012, 2014. Those are conversations that are happening in the commentariat. They're not conversations that are happening at an institutional level. And I don't think that you can get to the point of, oh, okay, you know, can we strangle a Trumpist Republican Party in its bed if you don't agree on what parts of the Republican Party you're supposed to survive after that? But I think it's it's more profound and, frankly, a little bit more one-sided than that, right? That you have a lot of people in the commentary, right? And I think I think Ben Wittes from Lawfare is like the emblem of this, right? Who they self-consciously don the mantle of resistance, yes, right? And they say Trump is unfit to be president, right? And then they refuse to accept the de minimis implication of what it means for Trump to be unfit to be president. But like if Trump is unfit to be president and you are part of the anti-Trump resistance, that means that as long as Trump is the president, if he is proposing something, you must resist it. Right? That like a popular front government meant we set a, po- a popular front meant we set aside our differences to pursue victory, right? But when you're saying, oh no, 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 we should confirm Brett Kavanaugh. That's not resistance. It's acquiescence, right? Like if Trump is unfit, then you cannot confirm any judges Trump proposes. And if the answer from Republicans is who next after Kavanaugh, the answer is nobody. And if the answer is how are we supposed to get good, honest, normal Republican judges? The answer is get a different president. It's like how are we going to get a different president? Well, Mike Pence. He could be a different president. Now, is that all that left-wing people should accept? Nothing gets done until Donald Trump is removed and then Mike Pence gets to do it? Like, no, but that would be the end of the popular front, right? Mike Pence becomes president, the popular front is over, and we have normal politics. But a lot of people, like, want to claim resistance without resisting. And it's fine. If you don't think that Donald Trump is genuinely unfit to be president and you do think that Donald Trump's directives should be followed and that Donald Trump's handpicked judges should get lifetime appointments, like, good for you. And we can argue about that. But that is not a resistance mentality, right. like, at all. Requires- and, it, and it is, and it's far from a coalition, right? It's actually corrosive because people then, I mean, this has always been one of the most annoying things in American politics is that a really banal viewpoint like Republicans are right on this issue, which would not get you anywhere, becomes like a huge deal if like Joe Lieberman says it, right? And so by creating this thing where people can be like, aha, I'm not a Republican anymore. I'm in the resistance. And you put on your resistance cap. And then you'll be like, as a member of the resistance, I'm telling you Brett Kavanaugh is good. And now your Republican cap is back on. And it's like, fuck you. Like, it doesn't, like, it doesn't mean anything. And I thought that that op-ed, right, like, I'm a member of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Who knows who writes the headlines, right? But like, that is- That was in the text. Yeah. But I mean, that was like the ultimate in like, muddying the waters around this. Like, it's fine to be a member of the Trump administration, to have some concerns about the president's decision-making process and some disagreements with other players about policy. It's interesting to tell that to journalists. I'm glad when I hear from people about, like, you know, I I, want to be, like, as far away as possible from the Oval Office chaos because I want to do my job. Like, that's a valid viewpoint. But, like, that's just not what resistance is. That means you just 
actually don't think that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. So I think you're kind of, and, you know, maybe in practice this works with a popular front, but I do think that it's obscuring the question of what is it that makes Donald Trump an illegitimate president, right? Like, there are people whose concerns about the legitimacy of Donald Trump would be assuaged if Mike Pence were to replace him. But there are also people who think that Donald Trump is an illegitimate president because the outcome of the 2016 election was tainted by Russian interference. There are also people who think that Donald Trump is an illegitimate president because, you know, the stance of the Republican Party at the national and state levels has been to change the way that votes are counted and and that representation is apportioned such that the 2016 election was not a free and fair election in meaningful ways. Like, those people are going to break down differently in what they think the popular front needs to be and what the proper remedy for it is. And I'm not super sure that just telling the Ben's Wittes of the world, you need to assume that even though everybody else in your coalition is not going to be satisfied when Mike Pence is president, that that's the point you need to get to and then you can veer off course is really a good way to address that. Uh, this is, I mean, two, two thoughts here. One is that uh, just as we were saying earlier that governing groups are coalitional, so are opposition groups, yeah. right? And what we're talking about is that the opposition to Donald Trump is coalitional. But the other thing that is interesting uh, that I wouldn't have thought I was going to come into this podcast and say is that I think a pretty useful analogy here is of the Tea Party. So after Barack Obama is elected president, the Republican Party's brand is quite bad. And so conservatives, with some differences, but really not that many, um, begin to rebrand as a Tea Party, mm. right? The, the opposition is not George W. Bush's Republican Party. It's the Tea Party, which believes in the founding fathers. Like they're not here to restore the George W. Bush presidency. They are here to oppose like the Obama overreach and take the country back. And, you know, there's a lot going on in, in what's happening there. But that becomes a much more popular branding mechanism than the Republican Party. And so soon enough, like John Boehner is part of the Tea Party and Paul Ryan's part of the Tea Party. And, you know, Eric Cantor is at Tea Party rallies. And everybody becomes part of the Tea Party, which emerges sort of out of an AstroTurf effort, but gets branded out of a CNBC rant from a like a guy who covers traders. Like the whole thing is a little bit crazy making. But a couple of years down the road from the launch of the Tea Party and whatever – what I, I remember reading the pieces early on about it being this truly decentralized structure and it was so grassroots and it was completely co-opted. I mean just anybody who was Republican was a Tea Party Republican by that point. The resistance has a dimension of that. The, the Democratic Party's brand is not great. Certainly the post-Hillary Clinton Democratic Party's brand is not great. There are a lot of internal Democratic Party schisms, right? Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat except when he has to run on a Democratic uh, like actual ticket. So there's all kinds of things going wrong inside the Democratic Party brand. Some people don't want to be part of it from the left. Some people from the right. Ben Wittes, I don't know how he votes per se. I'm not going to um, speculate on that. But I don't think that in general he portrays himself as a Democrat, right? That's not like that's not the footing. And so the resistance emerges. And like the people in the resistance originally are Democrats. Um, they're just like – like it, it to some degree comes out um, I, I think like the first big point you begin hearing it are the women's marches. But but it, it, it evolves beyond that. And so now you have whatever it was right at the start, which was a real resistance to Donald Trump, it's now a lot of people want to be there because – like what are the other brandings for opposition, right? You don't want to be part of the Democratic Party because for all kinds of reasons, you, that, that's not the branding you want. And then it's like you don't just not like Trump. And so now it's gotten so like crazy that you got people inside the Trump administration who are just Republicans who are proud of like 55 percent of what the mm – -hmm. like these things become 
exercises that speak to the fundamental unpopularity of the parties themselves, even as like the fundamental thing, like the actual resistance to Donald Trump is the Democratic Party. Like for the most part, like the way it can act out is like Republicans are voted out of office, including eventually Donald Trump, and Democrats are voted in office. You have a lot of people who don't want that to be the remedy. But so funnily enough, like they end up calling themselves a resistance without wanting to resist all that much at all, which confuses everyone. But but I think that's mostly what what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that's right. I mean, and there's uh, my friends, uh, Danny Schausman and, and Sam Rosenfeld have a, a paper called Hollow Parties. And it's about it's about the phenomenon that even as American politics has become much more sorted along party lines and like partisan politics is the only venue in which to like actually do anything, that the parties themselves don't mean anything to people, that very few people feel proud to be Democrats Mm -hmm. or have a social identity as Democrats, even if they have social identities that are very built around hostility to Republicans. So these kind of pop-up brands, right, where like the resistance is something that many people who are not Republicans do feel very enthusiastic about and and affiliate with. Um, To an extent, uh, indivisible groups have a like a subsidiary brand of that. And all of these things are things that in a different time, that might just be the Democratic Party, right? There could have been, but hasn't been, a surge in like people registering as Democrats, right? Instead, we've had these different kinds of surges in kind of para-party type, type groups, and it's created this somewhat murky, like, resistance concept. But, I mean, I do also want to distinguish between mass politics murkiness and inside Washington cynicism because I think there's a fair amount – I mean, there's always a fair amount of cynicism in elite politics. But I think around Trump, there's been a, a real kind of – triumph of this sort of like bait and switch that like, oh, libs, like if Donald Trump is as bad as you say, you have to become enthusiastic about Mitt Romney, right? Or this this inverse of the Ben Shapiro move that you kind of took where it's this sort of like weird discipline and punish politics being done on the right where it's like either stop complaining about how Donald Trump is a racist or stop complaining that Paul Ryan hates poor right. if people. If you really don't like Donald Trump, then you can't have Barack Obama give speeches anymore. Right. Because right? like Barack Obama's presidency led to Donald Trump. You know, it's, it gets right. into a very weird space. Right. I mean, well, it it makes sense if you think of the fact that we have an oppositional culture war that is is not being contained by any actual institutions, right? Anything that empowers the other side yes. in this culture war, sure. by definition, is something you need to stop doing if you want to win. Right, but it's like, you know, and, and I think um, uh, David Frum, who's a very eloquent and, and not at all, like, fake Trump critic or resistor, but, like, he's really big on the idea that, like, if you really don't want far-right anti-immigrant populists like Donald Trump to take power, which you need to do is have a harsh crackdown on immigration. And I guess I look at that and I I guess I don't really fear far-right anti-immigration people winning elections as much as David Trump does. I fear their policy agenda being enacted. And while Trump has obviously changed American immigration policy a lot, there have also been real limits to how much change he's been able to effectuate. And that's because, like, it's hard to pass laws in America, right? But if Democrats tried to lance the boil of Trumpism by signing on to Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller's immigration policy Or, proposals, gee, I don't know, by deporting 400,000 people a year, not that we had a Democratic president who tried that at all. Right. <laughs> to me, like, that would be 
a mistake to say that like that like the real problem here is that like Donald Trump is so personally offensive that I need Trump's immigration agenda enacted by someone who seems like a like a swell guy. I will also say like there there certainly are issues where I would be like let's make a compromise to go win it here. Um, it, it seems strange just like from personal prominence, the centrality of immigration to Trump and the frequency. I feel like Yasha Munk often makes this argument too that like European social democrats should like stop being so kind to immigrants because otherwise people who hate immigrants will win elections. And I I read those columns and I'm kind of like I don't know man like that's – that's fine. Like sometimes like fight on your issues. You're not going to win every election. I feel like we're now opening up space. This it could is, be yeah, another like is... three <laughs> weeks episodes. Right. Should, we do, should we do a white paper? Yeah. Right, let's take a break and do a white paper. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is an interesting paper that came across my radar recently. It's called, Does Rape Culture Predict Rape? Evidence from U.S. Newspapers 2000 to 2013. So what the authors here, Matthew Baum, uh, Dara, now I'm so afraid of how I pronounce the name, Dara? Dara? I apologize to (laughs) Professor Cohen because I have now made everybody neurotic about your name. Professor Cohen and Yuri Zukov. What they did here was they wanted to offer a quantitative analysis of whether rape culture predicts rape in a given area, whether it predicts both the observed incidence of sexual assault like rape and also the way police departments prosecute it, you know, what what happens when you bring it into the legal system. Problem is it's very hard to do a quantitative analysis of rape culture. So what they actually did was they created um, in consultation with a lot of different experts a textual analysis program that 
looked through huge amounts of local newspaper reporting and or actually just newspaper reporting up to and including New York Times and Washington Post, which in New York and Washington are, are local newspapers, trying to see in the newspaper reporting itself, could you see evidence of rape culture there? And, and the way they looked at things like that was, was the newspaper reporting built around questioning what the victim was doing, right? Did it have victim blaming characteristics? Was there a lot of sympathy for accusers? Like, oh, this would like derail a bright future, that kind of thing. And, and what they find, and, and we should talk about the methodology here because I, I do think there are questions about it. What they, they find is that newspaper reporting that appears to show evidence of higher levels of rape culture in a local area does predict a both the frequency of rape and how it is treated in the criminal justice system, which is to say there appears to be more rape in that area and there appears to be a more skeptical criminal justice system when victims come forward to try to get justice um, after being raped. So that's that's what the paper finds. I do want to do a quick crime nerd sidebar here because if you've done any work or reading on the treatment of rape in the criminal justice system, you probably kind of had alarm bells go off when Ezra started talking about the incidence of rape because – just like it's hard to measure rape culture, it is hard to measure rape in particular because there are so many questions about when do victims come forward and when are those complaints actually pursued. And so the authors of this do get around that a little bit. They are using uniform crime report data, which generally measures rape at a much lower level than the National Crime Victimization Survey, which uses phone surveys to ask people if they've been the victim of a particular crime. But, you know, it does, as Ezra mentioned, look at how what is the difference between police departments telling the FBI in the uniform crime report data that a rape has been reported and an arrest being made in the case and they use that as a proxy for whether law enforcement is pursuing it because so much of the question with the treatment of rape in the criminal justice system is when a complaint is brought forward, does law enforcement take it seriously enough to actually investigate it or do they just close it as an unfounded rape accusation? So like of the questions that this paper could raise, that is one that is semi-addressed. There are also lots of other questions such as does this very synthetic measure of rape culture actually reflect local norms? What's the relationship between a local norm and news coverage and What's the causal arrow here? There is a little bit of inconsistency about local newspapers reflecting the norms that already exist in the community versus local newspapers themselves kind of perpetuating these norms that might make someone less equipped to come forward or might make someone feel that they can come forward but reflect the law enforcement not being willing to pursue the case. Yeah, I mean, to me— what I was most interested in, given these correlations that I felt like would be an interesting realm for sociologists or others to delve into, is the possibility that this is actually stemming from the police departments, right? Yes. The yeah, there's an the, assumption the, going on here that, like, a local police department has the same norms as the local community at large, which I think needs to be interrogated. Well, but also they, they seem to be implying a, like, causal flow from the media yes, into exactly. the police department when it could go the other way around, right, that the people who report on crime issues may be taking cues from the police department about how to think about these things. You know, I mean, this is um, – Certain kinds of people do certain kinds of stats-heavy work, and I don't think you're going to resolve that with more and more statistical kind of high-powered inquiries. It would be interesting to, you know, actually like look into the 
guts of one particular community and how this coverage is generated or what differentiates them. Because the, you know, the idea that there's a linkage between these subjects is plausible. But the theory of how it works or why or what the level of change would be is very unclear, right? I mean, are we going to say that what you need to do here is show up at a local TV station and kind of harangue the news director for a couple of hours to change the tone of their coverage, and that's going to change police behavior, and that's going to improve incident reporting? Or is it the other way around, mm-hmm. and this is like really just a law enforcement issue from top to bottom? I, I think they're careful, particularly in the back half of the paper, of how they talk about that. But I did think one of the interesting things, which was a little bit to the side of the main question, but was that they found that newspapers were much less likely to evidence rape culture in their coverage, one, in much more competitive news markets, but two, where single women were more important to newspaper bottom lines. Um, They were were a higher than average proportion of readers were single women. There was far less rape culture in local newspapers than would be expected by chance, which did imply to me that whatever transmission mechanism was happening into the newspapers was not solely from Mm -hmm. a police department effect, that it was also about local mores and and who the newspaper felt its audience was. The thing about that is while they do point out some studies here that do demonstrate newspapers feeling pressure to cater to a certain audience or to to differentiate themselves, we have heard a bunch of stories over the last couple of decades as local news has been really struggling of people deep in the editorial side of the paper being extremely resistant to any explicit business talk, right? Like, they really do not like the idea that they should be changing the tone of a particular story because they need to cater to single women more. And the implication, you know, while I think that the the correlation that they're finding here is, you know, they don't appear to have fudged the numbers or fudged significance levels at all, this is something else where I really would want to see some qualitative talk about how that transmission mechanism works, because I'm just not convinced that that correlation speaks to papers being more solicitous of the views of single women who are concerned about rape culture. I would, and this is my speculation, but I actually didn't read the implied mechanism that way. I mean, look, like at at Fox, our um, audience is overrepresented with some groups and underrepresented with others. And while like one way of framing that is our business relies more on the groups that we're overrepresented among, like just like as we all experience all the time, there are tripwires that like we could walk into oh, yeah. that if like our readership tells us about very quickly, right? That readership both has a business dimension, but it also just editorially is very attentive. So okay. you get emails, you get letters, you get like angry tweets about your story, right? You you publish a story that has a description of a local rape case that is very victim blamey. And all of a sudden there's a local Twitter, you know, like the local blogs are all over you. And, and and that kind of thing, I think, is a pretty straightforward transmission mechanism by which the mores of a community and the mores of your audience affect editorial coverage just by also raising sensitivity to different things. That's a good point. And, and I'll accept that. But that also kind of, I want to be clear because we have read the paper and y'all probably have not. And if you are someone who reads the Weeds White paper before actually listening to the Weeds, you should let me know because that's awesome. But When we talk about, you know, rape culture, the assumption is that it's this kind of pervasive thing, that it affects not only the things you're saying, but the unspoken assumptions that you're making. 
even the the rapiest rape culture newspapers in this study, still only about 5% of the articles in this corpus show evidence of rape culture. And I think that, you know, to, to commit some methodology here, that may very well be that they're selecting articles based on mentions of rape or sexual assault, which A, means we're already talking about cases that make it into the paper rather than just getting buried. B, means we're talking about cases where at least one side is referring to it in criminalized terms rather than inappropriate sexual contact or sexual allegations or a lot of other euphemisms that people can use to describe these things. So it's a little bit weird to me that the right end of this distributional curve, the places where rape culture is supposed to be more pervasive, are still only showing this frame in 5% of their coverage of rape and sexual assault. And I think that that might be explained somewhat by the way that they're selecting articles to be used here. But it also says to me that we're looking at one way in which local mores can you know, perpetuate themselves. We're not really getting the whole picture because I really don't think that anyone would tell you who really believes that rape culture is an important driver of the way that rape is treated in the criminal justice system that we're talking about a difference of zero percent to five percent of attitudes. Toward yeah, but rape. I, but I, but I think I mean I think to give the the researchers some credit, right? That if the way you think about it is that okay, so scholars over a couple of generations have kind of posited that rape culture exists as a background factor driving actual events right, like actual occurrences of rape and its criminal treatment of it. Then the question is, is like, well, okay, if that sort of rape culture dark matter exists, one place where it might manifest itself is in newspaper coverage, right? And precisely by taking such a narrow filter, right, we're just, we're looking at even what they agree right, like are the rape cases. And we're looking at relatively modest differences in how they talk about the agreed to be rape cases. We are seeing, right, we are just picking up a powerful echo yeah. of that, they, right? They and we are measuring how, how, how powerful it right. is. I, 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 I just want to say – I think right. it's just because the default assumption of rape culture is that it is a pervasive and suffusive thing, it's important for – to understand when we're talking about this paper that we're talking about as a difference of zero to five percent. Yeah. Well, I just want to say uh, for them because I think we should just quote this. Um, mm-hmm. They say, it may take a small or huge increase in rape culture to generate an additional article containing it. And this relationship likely varies across time and space due to the noisiness of our proxy – the magnitude of the impact of one additional newspaper article is, for our purposes, secondary to the direction of the relationship. And our analyses clearly show this direction is consistently positive. What I'd say about this paper is that the fundamental thing it is trying to test is something I would really like to see tested. And the way in which it is trying to test it is an extremely, as they put it, noisy proxy. Yeah. And, you know, something they're saying is like, well, nobody's ever really done this before and like there's no good way to do it. And it just, you know, it seems like there is a lot of money in academia. But when you look at any individual study, it's clearly very hard to get money to do good big studies in academia. This – like the paper that I wish existed was you could look at 5, 10, 15, 20 jurisdictions. You could survey within those jurisdictions a battery of questions that would pick up attitudes towards rape, sexual assault, um, et cetera, the kinds of things we talk about when we're talking about rape culture. You know, does a woman who goes out in a short dress, is she, you know, like blah, 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 blah. Then you could look on both surveys about like have people experienced different forms of assault or harassment and then also on uniform crime data and see what matches up. Right? Like this actually does not seem to me to be a conceptually super difficult thing to test. It just seems like an expensive thing to test 
effectively. Well, I think— And, like, what I would like to see this paper do is convince some other people to test it in a more direct way. I mean, I also think there's been a lot of criminological research on the assumptions that line officers bring to the job and ha- and a certain body of how that affects their perception of rape victims. And I think that, you know, I'd kind of like to see that strain come into contact with the people who are doing the work here and trying to find quantitative measures of rape culture. Because if you are saying that there's a relationship between culture outside of a law enforcement department and the treatment of rape inside the law enforcement department, I'd want to see a more robust conversation about, okay, how are these officers who are getting these rape complaints adjudicating them? What are they hearing from their local community that's shaping or not shaping those decisions? How are they being shaped by the way they're trained as law enforcement, et cetera? And then we could have a conversation not just about, you know, how do we measure rape culture in a community, but is this a law enforcement culture problem? Is it a local culture problem? Is it both? And with that, I think we should wrap up this uh, this mega long episode of The Weeds. Uh, but remember to apply to be our audio engineer on this and other fine podcasts. Voxmedia.com is where you can find that listing. Yes, exactly. It's the Trump jobs boom continues mostly in the podcasting sector. Um, also, check us out at The Weeds Facebook group if you're a secret member of uh, the resistance. Uh, well, probably don't say so on Facebook, but you know, you might enjoy the discussion. We've got a Weeds newsletter coming out three times a week. If you go to vox.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter, you can see it there. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will return on Friday.